0: Well, it is my pleasure today uh, to introduce you guys to Representative Matt Krause. Uh, Matt and his family, they uh, currently reside in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, where he has five children. And uh, Matt was born and raised in Texas. There's that. Very good. Uh, So Matt is finishing up his fifth term in Texas state legislature. Um, In Tarrant County, that's uh, part of Fort Worth and part of Arlington, Um, Matt has fought to, A, protect the unborn. He has defended our Second Amendment rights. He has fought to secure the border. He has fought to preserve religious liberties, support law enforcement, and has consistently been recognized for his stances on traditional family values and pro-life advocacy. Amen. Amen. And if that wasn't enough, he is also a 6th grade Sunday school teacher. Wow! <laughs> Will y'all join me in welcoming Matt Krause? Mm.
1: Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. Good morning. It's great being here with y'all. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Skylar and Zane. We're Skylar and Zane. I met your parents after the first service. They told me to tell you hi. So, uh, <laughs> Hi. Hope you have a great, uh, hope you listen. Um, But uh, it's great to be here with y'all. As I said, I'm uh, Matt Krause. I'm a state representative up in uh, Tarrant County, uh, AT&T Stadium, the home of the Dallas Cowboys. is a part of the district. Uh, Your pastor and I were commiserating on it's been a long, long time since we've done uh, something substantial there, but hopefully that turns out this year. This is the year, right? It's always this year. This is the year. Uh, So, uh, hey, honored to be with y'all here today, Um, but I'm here today with a group called Wall Builders, and David Barton started this group uh, several decades ago uh, because he was concerned that the the American people were starting to lose or never be told about the rich uh, uh, heritage and legacy that we have as Americans from what our founding fathers gave us. And so, uh, as you know, the the less you know about your past, the easier it is to change the future, right? Um, If you have that anchor from the past, it's not as easy to get people away from it, but if they're untethered from it, you kind of move them wherever you want them to go. And so, uh, he wanted to make sure we kind of restored and renewed that uh, knowledge and history of America because it is rich, and it is full, and it is wonderful to know. And so, hopefully, by the end of today, you'll be excited, encouraged, and energized about being an American, uh, and celebrating Independence Day tomorrow, which we're all excited to do. And so uh, we, we want to get started on that because uh, today is America's, uh, well, tomorrow will be America's birthday, right? Um We're 245 years old right now. If this was tomorrow, it'd be 246, right? July 4th, 1776, when we declared our independence. And uh, we've celebrated every year since then. And so, 245 years, in that 245 years, America's been more prosperous. It's been more secure. It's done more things for the good of humanity than any country that's ever come before. And you think about all the other countries around the world that have been here for hundreds of years more, thousands of years more than America has. So, what made it so unique and special that in 245 years, we could do everything that we have done. And so I'm going to submit to you the thesis for the whole day, basically, is saying the reason America has been so successful, prosperous, peaceful is because we built our foundation on Judeo-Christian principles, on, on biblical principles that we find in the Bible, put into action in our, in our governmental system. That's what's made us so successful. And you think about it, our founding fathers, they understood this, and they uh, agreed with that. Let, let's look at John Quincy Adams. President John Quincy Asnam served as Secretary of State for a while, served as President for a while. It was the only President we've ever had who went from the White House back to Congress. Why did he do that? He went back to fight slavery. That was his sole intention when he went back to the uh, Congress after he served as President to end slavery. Never, never had that happen. Tried time and time and time again. He finally literally died on the, uh, in the Capitol, pretty much on the House floor. Um, and you may say he was a failure at that, but he had a really big impression on a guy who served in Congress for one term. Uh, John Quincy Adams' last term happened to coincide with this guy's one term. He was a congressman out of Illinois uh, and several years later became President Abraham Lincoln and used many of the methods that John Quincy Adams had uh, fought for and worked for uh, while he was back in Congress when he was president to try to finally end uh, slavery. And so you never know what the Lord's going to do. You never know how he's going to use your time. You may not see uh, the fruition of what you want, but it's there. And so uh, John Quincy Adams also was an ambassador to Russia when he was 14 years old, which is pretty incredible, right? Uh, Imagine sending your kid off across the seas when they're 14 years old to serve in a court, uh, in an international court when there's no email, there's no Instagram, there's no social media, there's no telephone, there's no nothing. There's no way to really communicate other than a a pen and letter. That's how impressive John Quincy Adams was. But listen to what he had to say. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it is not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. So back in the founding uh, father's time, back in the time that uh, he grew up, everybody knew the Bible. It's not like today where your pastor gets up every Sunday like, man, that guy knows the Bible. He gets into the Word. He's got a seminary degree. Man, we're so glad somebody knows the Word like that. No, everybody knew the Bible. It was only if you didn't know the Bible that anybody took note, and it was in a negative way, right? You were, it, it was shameful to be ignorant of the things in Scripture. And then you had President Zachary Taylor, old rough and ready. Here's what he had to say. He said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. A free government cannot exist without religion and morals, and there cannot be morals without religion, nor religion without the Bible. Especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young, it is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. So one of our earlier, uh, earliest presidents said, hey, the Bible is the rock on really everything that we do here in, uh, in, in our country. And I wish that every kid grew up with that. And in fact, we used to. There's a book that Wall Builders has that reprints of. It's called The New England Primer. And it was actually the school book that kids in New England would use 100 years into uh, when we were a country to learn their ABCs, their 1-2-3s, all of their building blocks of education. If you open it up and you look through it, uh, it goes through the alphabet. And this is how they learn the alphabet. For letter A, it was in Adam's fall, we send all letter C, it was Christ crucified for sinners died. So each one of the letters had a biblical principle that went along with it. That's how they learn how to read, how to write, how to do everything was in a biblical context. And Zachary Taylor said, that's what we have to do. And do you notice what he said? Cannot exist without uh, morals or religion. Where was, what was religion tied to? The Bible. It wasn't just some, hey, everybody believe what you want to believe, everybody do what you want to do, we'll be fine. No, he said, you've got to have religion to have morals, but you have to have the Bible as a part of that religion to have the morals. So he pegged it right to Christianity, which is pretty incredible. All right, the next one is President Andrew Jackson. He says it very succinctly. He says the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. Basically agreeing with the thesis that I just laid out, the reason America's been so good is because it was built on Judeo-Christian values. President Andrew Jack said, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. And then pretty, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, remember he was the rough rider, he was, did all the national parks, and he was a president into the 1900s. So we're not that far away. This is a president in the 20th century. Listen to what he had to say. He said, "The teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our civic and social life that it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed." We told the earlier service, we're starting to see what life would be like if those teachings were removed, right uh, in our culture, but he's saying it, not, not just our churches, not just our religious groups are intertwined with the Bible. He said, our civic and social life, so those things outside the walls of the church in the community are so interwoven and entwined with the Bible, you really can't separate the two. American society, civic society, and the Bible are together. And again, that's in the 20th century when he's saying that. So I think we have a lot of agreement with our founding fathers and even those that came after that said America's special because it's built on that rock. And because of that, I think you get American exceptionalism, right? And that's a term that people don't like anymore Uh, because you're saying, oh, it's cocky, it's arrogant, it's conceited. You're saying that Americans are better than everybody else. Well, we're not saying Americans are better than everybody else. We're not better than the French, than the English, than the uh, Russians, than the Chinese, and uh, wherever you want to say. It's our principles, ideals, and values that this country was built on are exceptional, they were new. They were novel in 1776. Nobody had built a country on this idea, right? Every other country was by people groups. It was by certain races, ethnicities. America was the first country who was ever founded really on an idea, a principle that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator uh, with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was radical. That's exceptional. We're not, but that is, and we need to strive to live up to that. So who's responsible for giving us American exceptionalism? What about George Washington, right? He's the first guy you think of, uh, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. He was the guy who got unanimously selected to be president. He could have stayed a lot longer if he wanted to. He really did give up power after two terms when he could have basically been a king uh, for as long as he wanted to. Maybe he was responsible for it. What about Thomas Jefferson? It seems like people on both sides of the ideological spectrum, uh, political spectrum, find things in Thomas Jefferson that they like and say, that's my guy. Or what about John Hancock, first president of the Continental Congress, very wealthy guy, very influential guy, signed his name really big on the Declaration of Independence. We'll get into that later. Maybe he was responsible. Or maybe John Adams, our first vice president, our second president. HBO did an entire miniseries on him. Well, when John Adams was asked who's most responsible for the character and nature of America and what it becomes, he listed off four different pastors. He talked about uh, George Whitfield. He talked about um, uh, Samuel Cooper. He talked about all these pastors. And it wasn't just uh, white pastors. Let's look at the next slide. It was Absalom Jones, John Morant, Lemuel Haynes, and John Morant. African-American pastors that were extremely influential at the founding of our country, including a guy named Harry Hoosier, which we don't learn much about him anymore. It's part of what wall builders loves to do is reintroduce people to the American uh, public now that used to be, uh, that were very influential in the time of the founding. Harry Hoosier was a pastor that would go up and down the East Coast, and he would say, we've got to end slavery in this country, and we've got to have increased morality in this country. And he would say that, and as his message would catch on, he'd move a little inland, move a little inland, and finally settle in this place, and he would be teaching and preaching and people go out into the community and they, they would hear them and they'd be like oh you're one of those Hoosiers aren't you well, that was in Indiana, right? What came to be known as Indiana. So every time Indiana takes the football field, the basketball court, whatever they do, they're paying homage to a African-American pastor who was very influential at the beginning of our founding of our country. That's pretty incredible, right? And so you have all these pastors who left this rich heritage and legacy that John Adams said, these guys are responsible for our country. Well, why would he peg the pastors? Well, because by 1763, most everything in the Declaration of Independence had been covered in the pulpits of the church. Right? You have the Declaration of Independence, some of that flowery language we already talked about earlier. When in the course of human events comes necessary to dissolve the chains, all this stuff. Life, liberty, in pursuit of happiness. But then under that, you have all these specific charges against King George III. Here's how he's uh, violating our rights. Here. Here's how he's violating our liberties. Here. Here's how he's doing this wrong. But if you go back and look at the, at, at the sermons that they were preaching during that time, the pastors were preaching about all these principles of liberty, freedom, and what was wrong 13 years before we even signed the Declaration of Independence. So that's why John Adams was like, hey, these pastors are the ones responsible, kind of like for the intellectual and philosophical framework for what we did in the Declaration and what we did with our country because they've been talking about it for so long. Now, fortunately, you have a pastor that does that still, right? You have a pastor that's not afraid to engage in the culture and be there, but a lot of pastors don't, and it's frightening, and it's scary, and we're going to use the example of two pastors uh, to kind of show that cautionary tale. So let's go to uh, John Peter uh, Muhlenberg, was a pastor in Virginia. Not only was a pastor in Virginia, but he eventually became a major general in George Washington's army. That's where that yellow circle is right there. But how he became a soldier is he was preaching one day. He was preaching on Ecclesiastes 3, right? There's a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a season for this, season for that. It's a time for war, time for peace. He said there's a time for fighting, and that time is now. And under his clergy uniform, he had a full militia uniform, took off the clergy robe, walked straight out the back of his church and onto the battlefield and became part of the Continental Army, right? And so that was John Peter Muhlenberg in Virginia. Well, he has an older brother in New York, and Frederick heard about it. And here's what Frederick had to say there's that little stunt up there. He said, you would have acted for the best if you had kept out of this business from the beginning. I now give you my thoughts in brief. I think you were wrong. He's like, look, I heard about this stunt. I heard about taking off the robe. You know, it's really cute. It's really funny, but you're wrong, right? You're not a soldier. You're a pastor. Your job is to preach the word of God, bring souls to salvation. That's your calling, and that's your job. So you were wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have done that. John, being a good little brother, as I am, had to respond. And he said, here's what John said, I'm a clergyman, it is true, but I'm a member of society as well as the poorest layman, and my liberty is as dear to me as any man. Shall I then sit still? Heaven forbid it, I'm convinced it is my duty so to do, and duty I owe to God and my country. So John Peter's like, look, I get it. You're right. I am a pastor, but I'm also a member of this society. I'm a member of this community. And if they're going to be out there on the battlefields fighting for independence, I've got to join them in that. And so I'm going to be out there doing that. I'm, going to, uh, I'm serving my role. I've got to do that. So he goes off onto the battlefield. Frederick keeps preaching at his church. And then something happens in 1777. The British invade New York. Not only do they invade New York, they take it over, and they kick him out of his church. So now Frederick's like, okay. What am I supposed to do now? I'm called to preach the gospel, but now I can't do that because I don't have a pulpit in a church anymore to do that from. And the light bulb finally goes on, right? He's like, I guess this is what John Peter was talking about. If I don't get involved in, out, uh, in what's going on outside the walls of the church, I may not get to do what I continue to love inside the walls of the church, right? And so he gets to work. He doesn't go out into the battlefield, but he gets involved in politics, and he rises through the ranks. And in fact, there's only two names on the Bill of Rights. Remember, we had the Constitution, then we drafted the 10 uh, amendments. After that, we called the Bill of Rights the first, second amendment, uh, 10th amendment, Uh, very important. There's only two names on that. You have John Adams, the first vice president of the United States, and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, the first speaker of the house under the constitution. So you had two pastors who got involved in two totally way, two totally different ways, one on the battlefield, one in the political arena, who made huge contributions to our country. And I always think about that because, as we were talking about, your pastor gets it. He gets involved in what's going on. Talking about the kindness initiative uh, in between services, that's huge. That's being the hands and feet of Jesus outside, right? Because we were talking in the first service, Jesus calls us to be two things, right? He calls us to be light and salt. And I think we're really good about being light. We're really good about giving to missions, going on mission trips, wanting people to know about the Jesus that we have in our heart and become our Savior and our Lord and Savior. We're really good about being the light. It's that salt piece that I think we're missing sometimes, right? Because what does salt do? It flavors and it preserves. And if the people of the church aren't outside in the community flavoring the culture and preserving the culture, then you're not going to like what you get. You're going to find yourself in a position like Frederick Muhlenberg was, not able to do what you love doing inside these walls of the church because you've and what's going on outside. So, and one other thing on salt, what else does salt do? Makes you thirsty, right? So the way you act, the way you live, the way you interact with the people outside the walls of these church ought to make them thirsty to be more like you and to come see what you have that they don't, right? And so we've got to be salt, we've got to be light, <clears throat> and the pastors at the founding of our country understood that. So, Who else understood it? Our politicians did, right? This is 1774. This is the first time we ever got together when we were discussing whether or not we should break away from uh, Great Britain or not. This was the first meeting of the Continental Congress in 1774. Can you tell what they're doing? They're praying. That's exactly right. And that yellow circle up there is John Adams. He was a part of the first Continental Congress. And so they got together in 1774. They prayed for hours uh, when they got together. But listen to what they also did. I must beg you to read that psalm, read the 35th psalm to your friends, and read it to your father. That was a letter from John Adams to Abigail Adams, his wife. They not only prayed, they read scripture. They read Psalm 35, and what they found in Psalm 35 was so encouraging, so uh, uh, enlightening to them, so exciting to them that they're like, hey, everybody should read uh, Psalm 35. So John wrote home, read Psalm 35, read it to your friends, read it to your father. Why read it to your father? Because Abigail's uh, father was the pastor in the area. Again, understanding the importance of the pastor and getting the word out to the community. So they prayed, they read scripture, and then listen to this. We have appointed a continental fast. Why? So millions will be upon their knees at once before their great creator, imploring his forgiveness and blessings, his smiles on American councils and arms. So our founding fathers prayed. They read Scripture, and then they appointed a fast so that God would bless them in their efforts should they go for independence. That's pretty awesome, right? We don't do a lot of that probably in D.C. anymore, Um, praying, fasting, and reading Scripture, but they probably should. So how did all this work out? They uh, They get into War of Independence in 1776. How's this playing out? Well, John Adams, who's watching this from a front row seat, says, it appears to me the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation. So not only, hey, it looks like things are going well, but the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, himself is operating powerfully against the British nation. That's incredible. And if you don't believe him, what about George Washington? Again, the general of our army on the battlefield every day. In 1778, five years before we actually won the war, but in 1778 he says, "...the hand of providence has been so conspicuous or so easy to see in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that is not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations." So George Washington is like, I'm out here every day. I'm seeing what's going on. If you can't see that the hand of God is helping us through these things, you're more than wicked. You're an infidel who lacks faith if you can't give God credit for what he's helping us do. So we get through, we go through 1783, the battle of uh, Yorktown. We finally, um, you know, kind of w- cease all hostilities and we finally get our actual uh, cessation from England in 1783 at the Treaty of Paris. And these are the three guys that negotiated that for us. John Jay was our first uh, chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He's the one standing up. John Adams, who we've seen over and over again, is sitting down, and Benjamin Franklin is sitting right by him. So in 1783, they negotiate uh, the Treaty of Paris with Great Britain, and you can see their wax uh, seals and their names uh, on that left side of the document right there. Um, So they signed it, but look how the first document that we ever signed as an officially independent nation starts out. In the name of the most holy and undivided trinity, Not a lot of documents start off like that these days, right? Even at the church, we don't start off a lot of documents, but our founding fathers in 1783 as they negotiated peace from Great Britain, that's how they started off our first official document. So you've seen John Adams in the room from 1774 to uh, negotiating the treaty in 1783, and here's what he had to say. He said, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Backing up our thesis from the beginning that the, that the greatness and the exceptionalism of America is because it was founded on a Judeo-Christian bedrock, right? That's what John Adams is saying here. You get a lot of people who disagree with you on social media, regular media, academic world, and other places. But if I'm going to believe somebody, I'm going to believe the guy who was there from start to finish of the entire Revolutionary War, War for Independence. If that's what he says, I think there's a lot of uh, truth there. So how do we get headlines like this? America's unchristian beginnings our founding fathers most despite preachings of our pious right were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus Now, I was telling the uh, earlier service that I'm the son of a pastor, I'm the grandson of two pastors, I'm the great-grandson of a pastor, I'm the brother of a pastor, the nephew of a pastor, and the cousin of several pastors. And I'm a lawyer and a politician, right? So I kind of went way other way. But, so I don't have a seminary degree, but I don't think you need a seminary degree to understand in that Treaty of Paris where we invoke the name of the Most Holy and Undivided Trinity, that you're invoking the deity of Jesus Christ, right? So even if it wasn't in their personal lives, but our, uh, our official state documents invoke the deity of Jesus Christ, how can these guys say they rejected the d- divinity of Jesus? Or how about this one? The authors of the declaration were enemies of Christ. So now we've gone one step further than just rejecting the divinity of Jesus. Now we're actual enemies of Jesus Christ, right? And then how about this one? The founding fathers were not Christians, and I bet if you asked a lot of folks, this is the prevailing sentiment they would have about our founding fathers, right? They were a bunch of agnostics, atheists, deists, slave owners who didn't know, who, who aren't worth celebrating, venerating because they were flawed human beings. We don't need to celebrate them. Well, let's see if the actual truth backs up with what this conventional wisdom uh, says. So we look at this painting. This is the painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The 56 men who participated and signed the Declaration, including, uh, so these are the, these are the 56 men. David Barton, when he goes around, whether it's schools, whether it's churches, nonprofits, wherever he goes, civic groups, he says, Name people in that painting for me. And he says, People can always usually name two Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. He said, isn't it interesting we've trained the world to recognize the two least religious founding fathers when there were other much more religious founding fathers in that painting who contributed or did just as much than even those two. Um, And you're like, well, how do we know? Well, let's look at some of the 54 in that uh, room and see what they thought to see if it backs up the the headlines from earlier. So the first one we're going to start off with is Samuel Adams. Samuel Adams was the cousin of John Adams, right? But he also led the Sons of Liberty, who did the Boston Tea Party, all of that. When the British were initially coming over, they said, get John Hancock and get Samuel Adams, and we can pretty much put this thing to bed. Um, Because that's how important and influential he was as a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he said, I rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all my sins doesn't sound like somebody who rejected the divinity of Jesus who's relying on the the merits of Jesus Christ for pardon of all of his sins right only the deity can pardon those sins he's relying on Jesus Christ for that so not an enemy of Christ The next one, John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon, you see that uh, yellow circle back there, uh, was on over 100 different committees when he was in Congress. Incredibly uh, prolific uh, legislator during his time. Also the head of Princeton College, where he mentored a lot of our other founding fathers that came along after him. Listen to what John Witherspoon had to say. I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other. If you are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you are not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. It's pretty strong, right? Does that sound like somebody who's an enemy of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. All right, who's next? Benjamin Rush. We, we don't know much about Benjamin Rush these days, which is kind of a shame because he was an incredibly influential founding father. In fact, if you asked them back in those days who was the most influential, they'd say Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, and Benjamin Rush. He was the father of American medicine, pioneered the Sunday school movement uh, here in America. Uh, so incredibly influential founding father. And he said... My only hope of salvation is in the infinite transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly." We joked in the first service that if your pastor gets a sudden onset laryngitis and can't speak, you could sing your songs, pass the offering plate, read that quote, and go home, and you've had church, right? That's how solid that that statement is. That's how doctrinally on point that statement is for one of our most influential founding fathers. And then you have Roger Sherman, Roger Sherman, incredibly influential founding father, only founding father to sign all four foundational documents, articles of association, articles of confederation, constitution, declaration of independence, only one to sign all four. And he's actually the guy who came up with, hey, let's, uh, let's elect senators, two per state, and then let's have the lower house be popularly elected. One of the bedrocks, hallmarks of our constitutional system. He came up with that, that was his idea. So incredibly influential, here's what he had to say. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. God has promised to bestow eternal blessings on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel, that is, in a way of free grace through the atonement. That's solid. That's not an enemy of Christ. That's not somebody who rejects the divinity of Christ. That's not somebody who's not a Christian. This one quote alone puts all of those headlines to rest. And then we're gonna look at John Hancock. Remember, we said John Hancock was the president of the Continental Congress, signed his name really big on the Declaration of Independence. Somebody said, why'd you do that? Supposedly, he said, King George III has bad eyesight, and I want to make sure he can read my name when he gets it. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I like to think that it is because that's pretty cool. But not only was he the president of the Continental Congress, he was the, he was the governor of Massachusetts. And during his time as the governor of Massachusetts, he called the people of Massachusetts to pray 22 different times. And listen to what he asks the people of his state to pray for during these prayer proclamations. Let us pray and confess our sins before God and implore his forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Pray that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be established in peace and righteousness among all the nations of the earth. Pray that the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. That's incredible, right? He's not praying that the crops come in on time. He's not praying that there is no drought this year. He's not praying that their enemies would be vanquished. He's praying that the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that every knee shall bow to the scepter of, Lord, uh, uh, of Jesus Christ. That's incredible. That's what he did. An enemy of Christ would not put those in prayer proclamations, especially do 22 of them while you're governor. So that's pretty awesome. And then the last one we're going to look at is Charles Carroll reason we look at him last is because he was the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence. Everybody had passed. Uh, in a time where you lived into your kind of late 30s, early 40s, uh, Charles went well past his 80s. And so uh, people, were, his family was coming up to him was like, Charles, you're going to die. <laughs> it's going to happen at some point. You've outlived a lot of people, but you're going to die. When that happens, what's going to happen to you? Do you know where you're at? What's going to go on? What's going to go? And so he he writes this letter. That's his handwritten letter back to his family. At that red arrow uh, is where he answers their question. He says, On the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works I've done in obedience to his precepts. Basically, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? It's not me, it's him. And so, I'm good. Don't worry about me, I'm fine. So, his family's safe. Because he was the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence, he got invited to do a lot of historical things, right? And so, on August 2nd, 1826, they were having this big celebration for when most of our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. Most of them didn't sign on July 4th or July 2nd. Uh, most of all of them signed on August 2nd. So, 50 years to the day that most of them did that, they were going to have this big celebration in New York. They invited Charles Carroll to attend. It's like, I'm too old, I can't do that, but send me one of the original copies. I'll write some like parting words on the back of the Declaration of Independence uh, and you can read them. List, l- look at his, uh, some of his last words. I'm grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which through Jesus Christ our Lord he has conferred on my beloved country. That's incredible, right? Your last words, you want them to be measured. You want them to be important. You want to emphasize what you want to do. And his last words, you want to say, hey, I'm grateful to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, not just some nebulous God um, Thank you for what you've done for our country. It's incredible. So um, that's what Charles Carroll ended us with. So were the authors of the Declaration enemies of Christ? No. And we've only looked at a couple of them. There are several more in that uh, room of 56 that we haven't even looked at that are just as uh, important, that are just as impressive that those guys. And we used to learn about them, right? In our schools, we used to read about a book called The Lies of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. It would go through all 56 men so you could know who these people were that founded our country. And if you think the men were incredible, the women were even more important, right? The wives of the uh, the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Because you think about the uh, 56 men, they're there, they're in Philadelphia at Independence Hall, they're pontificating, theorizing, philosophizing, writing documents. Well, the women are back home, right? Taking care of the farms, taking care of the business, repelling the British that are coming after them, taking care of everything back home. And so uh, you want to talk about an impressive group of founding mothers. Those 56 women were unbelievable as well. And we used to teach that. Wall builders has uh, copies of that. We've got catalogs when you leave today and coupons if you want to order stuff. But you can go back and see what we used to teach in our schools so we would know who these 56 men and their wives were, We've gotten away from that, so that's how we can have newspaper articles like the ones we just saw that are completely inaccurate and ignorant. I want to look at two uh, speeches real quick to further the thesis one more time that we grew up in an era, and our country was found in an era that was based on biblical principles. I'm going to start one before the, uh, the war and one during the uh, drafting of the Constitutional Convention that I think will drive it home. But we have Patrick Henry. You probably know which uh, speech we're going at on this, but Patrick Henry came to the Virginia House of Burgesses on March 23, 1775. Virginia was in an interesting position trying to figure out, do we get involved in this war for independence or do we not, right? As we were talking earlier, about 33% of the people in America wanted to fight for independence. That's all, just about a third. Another third were loyal to the crown, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're subjects of King George. We're, we're not, we're not going to commit treason and try to break away. And then you had about a third of the people in the middle, like you always do, that just couldn't make up their minds, right? So, um, uh, But the war, already. there were already some clashes. There were already some... Uh, th- uh, things moving down the track and so Virginia's like do we get involved in this war or do we not and that's where Patrick Henry comes in on March 23rd 1775 and here's what he says Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of the means which the God of nature has placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone, it's to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle, and what is it that the gentlemen wish? What would they have? Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death." one of the most impactful, incredible, important speeches in all of American history. Because of that, the people of Virginia were like, you know what? He's right. Patrick's right. The House of Delegates is like, we got to get involved in this war. They came alongside a huge help to the war for independence. So the effects of this speech, just incredible. Well, look at this. In those 14 sentences, he quoted the Bible 11 times. And look where he quoted them from. Jeremiah, Matthew, Joshua, Daniel, Psalm, Deuteronomy, 2nd Thessalonians, all over scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, right? So as we were saying earlier, it's not like he got up and read Jesus Calling that morning. He was like, man, this is really good. I'm gonna go share that with the guys when we get there tonight. No, when he spoke, extemporaneously, the vernacular of the day was biblical language. Now some people may say, well, he wasn't trying to speak in biblical terms. That makes my point even stronger, right? What what did John Quincy Adams said? Everybody knew the Bible. Everybody understood it. It was only if you didn't know it that anybody took note of it and it was a negative. So everybody understood it. So when they talked, when they were trying to rally the troops, when they were trying to say something important, they used biblical language, quoting the Bible 11 times in 14 sentences in one of the most impactful speeches in American history. So now the next one. We win, our, win independence, get the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Things do not go well at the beginning, right, for those first three or four years because the federal government has no ability to kind of keep everybody together. So some of our influential founding fathers got together in Philadelphia again in 1787, same place, Independence Hall, and said, We've got to create this new government. And our Constitution was formed. But Benjamin Franklin was there, oldest delegate at the Constitutional Convention. And he hardly spoke, but he gave his longest speech on June 28, 1787, because they couldn't figure anything out. they had already been there for several weeks, but they couldn't come to any kind of agreements, right? The big states were fighting with the small states. The slave states were fighting with the free states. The agriculture states were fighting with the more urbanized states. They could not come to any agreement. So the eldest statesman in the room, June 28, 1787, Benjamin Franklin stands up and says this. In the situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. If I firmly believe this, and I also believe without its concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we uh, shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. So Franklin was like, we've forgotten everything we learned in 1776 about praying to God, him answering and blessing that when we sought him. So he said, we should start praying every morning. They didn't take a vote on this, but we know the next couple of days they took a break. They took a little recess of several days. One of those days we know they went to church. How do we know that? Because the front page of the Philadelphia paper had the prayer that the pastor prayed over those guys uh, and, and in that uh, paper. And so they came back after that recess and by September 17th, which is Constitution Day, they had crafted the greatest governing document mankind has ever considered conceived in a period of weeks after they couldn't do anything up until June 28th. Coincidence? Maybe, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they brought the perspective back where it needed to be, and Benjamin Franklin was a huge part of that. And Benjamin Franklin, again, an admittedly unreligious guy, 14 sentences. He quoted the Bible 13 times, and look where he quoted it from. Luke, Second Chronicles, Job, Psalm, James, Daniel, Deuteronomy. Again, Old Testament, New Testament, all over the breadth and depth of scripture. That's how they talked. That's what they knew. That was the vernacular of the day. So to me, that's what American exceptionalism is. And I feel like we're on the verge of giving that away, right? I feel like we're about the first generation that is going to leave the next generation in a worse off place than we found it. And there's a uh, precedent for that, right? Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Listen to what Charles Finney said in the 1800s. He was one of our pastors during the second great awakening, incredibly influential and important pastor. Here's what he had to say in the 1800s again. Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree." If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public uh, press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility and respect to the morals of this great nation. If you don't like the direction of, that the country's going, don't look to D.C., don't look to Austin, don't look at anywhere else besides the church, right? Second Chronicles 7:14. if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves. It's all about the church. So if we want to see revival in this land, if we want to see a turning back in this country, it's the church that starts it. And I know that sounds daunting, right? But what I always like to talk about is when Nehemiah went back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Remember uh, when he went back and he had people with him? He didn't just say, hey, you know what? Let's go rebuild the walls. Everybody, let's go. No, what did he do? He's like, okay, I want your family. I want you to take that part of the wall. I want your family. You take that part of the wall. And y'all take that part of the wall. I want you guys right here. You take that part of the wall. Y'all take that part. You take that part. Everybody had their own part of the wall. So you're not in charge of bringing revival or changing America even of Texas, even of Montgomery County, even where we are right now, all you're in charge of is is the area where you're concerned with your family and in your church building, right? So if everybody commits to do that, we can have, I think, a a reawakening here in America, which would be awesome. But until then, let's celebrate independence. Let's fight for that to give on to the next generations because this is a country worth fighting for. We have a great legacy. We have a great heritage. It's up to us to continue to give that to our kids and grandkids and after that. So happy Independence Day. Thank you for letting me be here with you. And God bless you guys.